a very good afternoon, evening, or morning to you, and welcome <laughs> to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today due to a lack of other options, and also joined by Bo Olette, which, believe it or not, is an honor and opportunity. Thank you for joining us. Hey, yeah, it's a blessing to be here today. Looking forward to it. Yep, and what we are looking forward to will be your sincere Bible questions. If you have something that includes all three of those details, we'll be happy to receive them from you for the next hour. We will be receiving your questions through a number of venues, which we'll be happy to provide as the broadcast unfolds. First of all, we're live streaming on YouTube. That will be at A Reason for Hope 546. You can join us there if you prefer the URL. Just look up A Reason for Hope when you see the red Calvary dove. You are in the right place. We're live streaming every single weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the United States. So if you are able to join us, we will be happy to meet you there. If you would prefer Facebook, we are there as well at Calvary, that's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com, or rather Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. CCF Tucson will be the URL, and you can join us there as well. Our website, which I mentioned preemptively, is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or .com. And of course, if you click on the Watch Live tab, you will be sent to where we are streaming or an automatic plane of yesterday's broadcast. Also, if you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, you will be also listening to the broadcast that was aired the day before. So as those things are going out, note that when your questions are being sent in, we'll be likely getting to them the next day. If you want to circumvent social media, note that you can do so through email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's the word questions. The questions are plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com and if you send us your questions there we will be able to keep them nice and organized and in a way where we can get to them at leisure uh, note that priority will be going to the questions that are sent to us live so if you have any that once again fit these criteria of sincere bible and question we will be honored to take aside the time that we're setting aside for answering your questions and with that said Answering the questions, of course, isn't just an intellectual pursuit, it's a spiritual one. Mm. Bo, would you like to start us off in a word of prayer, involve God in the process? Absolutely. Let's pray. It's Tuesday, too, so it's my day to pray, yes. pray here. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace uh, towards us as seen in your Son, Jesus. Uh, and Father, we are in awe of all that you do uh, in and uh, uh, in your Son and and how that uh, looks in our own life, Lord, through the work of your Holy Spirit. We do pray that you would bless this time and speak through Sean and myself, uh, grace to the listeners. And uh, Father, may people be blessed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right, so starting us off, uh, we went through a number of interesting topics yesterday, but not a lot of questions were addressed. Mm. Well, we want to start with a question that was sent to us yesterday from Talon, who wants to know, is marriage more a pathway of sanctification? For those who don't speak the Bible language, uh, it means mm. to be cleansed and set aside for a new purpose, usually living a godly life, and a gift that should be cherished, parenthetically, mm. or more a gift or blessing that in turn also sanctifies. So the question is, is marriage a ministry? Is marriage a blessing? <laughs> Can it be both, like all ministries? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what would be its approach? Because I'm kind of a noob in when it comes to marriage topics. 
Yeah, well, it, it is a it is both. Um, so it's a blessing, and what was the other thing? It's a uh, ministry. Mi- it's a ministry as well. Um, um, you, you know, I think one of the uh, one of the things you always want to ask when it comes to marriage is what is the purpose of marriage? Why did God create monogamous heterosexual marriage? Um, and when you get into your Bible study on this, um, you're going to find some really great uh, mind-boggling answers. Um, you know, God, in the very beginning, made them male and female. Uh, in the image of God, he made them. That's Genesis chapter 1, verses, what, 27, maybe? Um, but he creates them. And uh, this is interesting, that God creates diversity and unity. And this is a big theme throughout the Bible, the entire Bible. When you're studying it, you're going to see these incredible um, themes of oneness, uh, unity, a diversity, and a unity. Now, for the Christians out there, you know, riding home, they might go, oh, that's true, right? Because the church is is diverse. We have many gifts, but we're one, and you're, bing, that's right. That's another example of this incredible theme that's throughout the whole Bible. And um, I, I think it's very important when you're talking about marriage that you're asking this question, why does God create it? Why does he create diversity and unity? And the most uh, amazing aspect of this is because God desires to be known. God doesn't create us, his, uh, his creation, with this kind of ambiguity uh, in the creation. Uh, instead, he creates things that reflect his image, his likeness. And it's interesting, God is diverse of a unit. There's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about the Trinity and the uniqueness of uh, the God of the Bible. Uh, So when God creates monogamy, monogamous heterosexual marriage, he creates it for the purpose of understanding his very nature, what God is like. God is one of something. Just as a marriage is one, is diverse people becoming one, and this is something very cool and awesome. Um, Malachi tells us that why did God make them one? And it's uh, having a remnant of the Spirit. Very interesting. And it says for godly offspring, uh, family units, diversity in families, but one family. Um, And so, uh, you know, that is uh, a part of the ministry of marriage is a lot of marriages kind of forget this, but if you don't understand the theology behind marriage and you get married, um, you you might not have a very good foundation for your marriage if you're not understand <laughs> if you're not understanding why God created it. Um, and so that in this in a sense is just a small little taste of what the Bible, why God designed it the way he did. He wants his creation. He gives us an opportunity to understand him through this thing we call marriage, heterosexual monogamous marriage. 
Um, so that is a ministry. But is it a blessing? Absolutely. It, the Bible says, you know, uh, you know, blessed is the one who finds a wife. I mean, that's a good thing. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Yeah. Proverbs 18.22. Yeah, so it's, you know, is it a blessing to be married? Absolutely, it's a blessing. It's a joy. Does it contribute to your sanctification? It very well could help in your sanctification, um, you know, meaning your walk with God. Um, will it give you an opportunity to? Yes, it will. But you'll have an opportunity to grow in your sanctification, whether you're single or whether you're married. So um, growing in your sanctification is just a work of God uh, in the believer's life through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that can happen whether you're married or whether you're not. But you will have an opportunity in your marriage to grow in sanctification, to grow in Christ. And examples of that are in 1 Corinthians 7, for instance, where it notes that there's a uh, decided opportunity to get over yourself and focus on the well-being of someone else. They focus on the needs of their wife, whereas the single man focuses on the things of God. Now, unfortunately, people in history have taken that to mean, oh, so if I remain single, like it says in Revelation 14, that uh, those who are before the Lamb of God are virgins. They're without fault before the throne of God. So marriage would be seen as a fault. What would be your responses to that? Yeah, I would say that's that's not what it says. <laughs> so uh, I would say that's an inference, uh, but it's not what the Scripture says. Nowhere does the Bible say that marriage is somehow a second-class category of those that follow uh, the Lord. And remember, the first thing that God did was create man and uh, and then create women. Woman, uh, you know, I'm saying when you know, I'm, I should say the 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 pinnacle of his creation was the creation of man and woman and uh, again I, I you quote I quoted uh, Genesis 127 I think it was that in the image of God he created them male and female he he created them and so this is obviously the pinnacle of God's creation and he says be fruitful and multiply and that means to be intimate and so we see the first commandment of the Bible was to be intimate that being intimate is in some way a picture of the image of the Creator. And this is a mind-blower for a lot of people, right? But it's just what it says on page two, <laughs> you know? So I, we didn't make it up, you know? But, um, and this becoming one is very unique. It's a very neat thing. It's something God uh, talks about in His own nature. Behold, the Lord thy God is one. He's, he's one of something, and marriage, when it's talked about in marriage, it says, Behold, they shall become one flesh. Uh, we know that two people becoming one, they're really two people, and they're having intimacy. And God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so God creates marriage to be a picture, some a way for us human beings to be able to understand a spiritual truth about the nature of God, but not only the nature of God, but in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul exalts marriage to this incredible place of understanding the Lord, Jesus Christ's intimacy with his church and us by being indwelling us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that doesn't sound like second class at all. That doesn't sound like it's a bad place to be in, you know, marriage. It sounds like it's very exalted by Paul the Apostle, 
um, who also wrote 1 Corinthians 7. Who else? And 6. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 5. Yeah, and a couple right. others. Yeah. So, um, yeah, to say that, oh, for some reason, uh, you know, uh, those of the 144,000 in, in the book of Revelation that were virgins, you know, that were undefiled, that, you know, um, they were somehow greater or better than those um, who had gotten married. Um, it just, the text doesn't say that. Yeah, the emphasis is they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Yeah. Therefore, they are without fault before the throne of God. Yeah, they're very single-focused people called for a, a purpose during a certain period of time. Which, with an Old Testament mind, you'd think back to the book of Jeremiah, where he was encouraged to be single. Why? Because he was living during a time of persecution and God's wrath. Yeah. He didn't want to marry because he'd see his wife and daughter killed brutally in front of him. That's yeah. a quote. Yeah, and when you're talking about the 144,000 virgins who were not married in the book of Revelation, you could even hearken back to the military actions of Israel, where they wouldn't engage in sexual relationships when they were at war. Yeah, and if uh, they were, for some reason, the draft got started for all intents and purposes, yeah. uh, some of the exceptions were, and this was practiced literally in the book of Judges, Gideon said, if any of you bought property, bought a new animal or, you know, farm equipment. If you got married. Yeah, and that was the third one. Then go home. You have another purpose than to, quote unquote, lay down your life. <laughs> right, go, go, but, go make kids. <laughs> yeah, that was the point. So if we're in a situation where we're called to a particular ministry, singleness or marriage, God's in it. Yeah. And that is just as true for the single man as it is for the married man. Now, what is the ministry of marriage? It's different for the single, and of course, vice versa. But the question to say that one is superior or inferior to the other is the same mistake people make of saying, well, I'm called to be, you know, a, a plumber for Jesus or an electrician for Jesus. It's nothing like being a pastor for Jesus. No, you'll be rewarded for your faithfulness wherever you are. Yeah. So if you're faithful to your wife, it is the same kind of honoring of God in ministry that you would be in faithfulness to an occupation, faithfulness in a, uh, say, for example, your call to purity and faithfulness to whatever. It's faithfulness to God as he's called you, which is why Paul emphasizes in that very same passage, I wish all men were as I am, but nevertheless, each because, one. yeah, let yeah. each one have his wife and each man his husband, or each woman her own husband. So more text, not less. But. Yeah, yeah. Paul in that First Corinthians 7 place says, live as you are called. Some are called single, some are called married, but he just tells people, live as you are called. And... Um, yeah, so you can be sanctified. God's going to work on your your holiness, whether you're married or whether you're single, for sure. We don't want to exalt one over the other. Um, I would definitely take that home with that question. And the ministry of marriage um, really has to do with the theology of marriage. What is the purpose of monogamous heterosexual union? Um and, and that's going to, again, point you back to the nature of God and to the intimacy of Christ in his church. Two things that are emphasized scripturally. Okay, cool. So I've uh, got a question from Yari. Um, hey, Yari, what's up? <laughs> let's see how we can phrase this. Goliath had an armor bearer. How could he not see the rock coming towards him telling Goliath to duck? It must be an act of God, right? the job of the armor-bearer would say a sword-spear is coming towards you. 
I don't know where you're getting that, Yari. Um, um, historically, yeah. the job of the armor bearer was to bear your armor. There's a, two examples of armor bearers in Scripture in any explicit detail. The first was with Jonathan and his shield bearer, which just basically accompanied him as a bodyguard in battle, and he joined him in the battle. There's no specific example of him telling him to duck when the Philistines were or weren't throwing rocks or swords at him. I don't know why you'd throw your sword. Second, if you uh, look at the interesting encounter that King Saul had with his shield bearer, uh, he asked him to help him commit suicide. So in that case, it was asking him to throw a sword at his face. The fact, though, was that the uh, armor bearer was Hebrew and he wasn't going to do that, so Saul tried to kill himself and apparently failed if you take the Amalekites' word for it in him putting Saul out of his misery in 2 Samuel 1. I personally think he was lying. But um, that all aside, it's reading a lot into the text to say that was his job when we see no example of that, to infer an act of God when you can just have a rock thrown at your head fast enough that it would puncture your head. And that's not something that you generally could duck from. It's just kind of you got shot, to use the Forrest Gump vernacular. And the fact that Goliath, again, had an armor bearer doesn't infer anything more than the text than what we're told, and that was that he was there. When he got engaged in a one-on-one duel with David, that is what we're told. So that's what we should take away from it. Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, you'd have to read the question again to have me think through it a little more. Goliath had an armor bearer. How could he not see the rock coming towards him, oh. telling Goliath to duck? Hey, it must duck be an it. act of God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's sometimes when we read the Bible, <clears throat> we can kind of ask a lot of questions like that, like, hey, what if, you know, why didn't this happen or why didn't that happen? Um, but we kind of miss out on the main point of the text itself. You know, uh, the writers, uh, obviously the Holy Spirit used, it says in the book of Peter, um, holy men and separated them uh, for the writing of God's word. And, and so God has revealed to us certain things and not other things. And so some of the things that we're at, we kind of look at, what if what happened here, what happened there, those are things that just God hasn't revealed to us of every part of these narratives that are going on. We don't know like all the different details of the narratives of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or Gideon, or we don't know every day of their life or anything like that. It's not what we want. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but it's, you know, sometimes we're so used to, I think, the cinema, you know, uh, in our world, where we're used to things visually, where we're used to seeing a a little more of the nuance and the detail, and we just don't get that from uh, these narratives. Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it's neat that we ponder it and we kind of wonder, hey, man, where was the armor bear? But you know what? It's funny. It's like, uh, you know, I've played football before. And even though you can try to protect the, the quarterback and you're supposed to protect him, you know, I, w- I played right guard. Uh, so that's on the offensive line. And even though you try to protect the sometimes you miss something. And things are going so fast, and your quarterback gets uh, just beat down like hardcore, and and all of a sudden you turn around and your and your quarterback's on the ground, 
and you're like, whoa, what happened? You know, and you don't know what happened. Everything was so fast when that hike happened and the play went. You just didn't know what was going on. And I would imagine the armor bear, um, you know, whoever it was, was trying their best. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes your best just isn't good enough, as the song says. <laughs> it just, you know, so, um, you know, we can't really put much blame on the armor bearer there. Um, you know, it sounds like the, the, the narrative's more focused on um, just the courage of David and that and the boldness of David to rely on the Lord in a moment of uh, incredible incredible political and militarily military conflict and uh, you know I think the big thing to take home Yari is that when you're in conflict and you're in a stressful time is to have courage and trust in the Lord that if God is for you, who can be against you? He's with you. He'll help you in the trial. But we are to lean and trust on the Lord. And this is what we get from the text, uh, big picture-wise. So those are the things God wants us to understand. God was raising up a guy named David, and God was going to uh, use him in a powerful way. And we see this courage coming out of this young lad. All right. A question from Lila. Uh, wants to know about Second Peter 2.20. What does it mean to escape the pollutions of this world? Is this literal climate change? Uh, short answer, no. Long answer, no. Let's start in verse 18. And of what passage? Second Peter 2. It says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, and this is in reference to false prophets, that's what started chapter 2, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, so notice the they subject that started in chapter 2 and verse 1 continues on in verse 18 by describing the what? Lust of the flesh. Is this referring to carbon emissions? Is this referring to ocean temperatures? Is this referring to government intervention and tax policies? No. no. It goes into what? Lewdness. The ones who have actually escaped those who live in error. Now, lewdness is a older word and it's generally not used today except in more of a uh, you know urban dictionary sense the word just means shamelessness yeah in other countries it's used more than it is here uh, but yeah uh, doing something an act that is shameful but without the shame that should accompany it so notice verse 18 starts they allure through the lust of the flesh through lewdness the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error so who are the two topics here the government and its citizens, the policies and the earth. No, it's discussing false teachers and believers. Verse 19, while they, who are the objects of this conversation here and who are the subjects, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So we have a person who's enslaved to his lustful passions, the corruption, the lewdness of lust that he started the conversation with and that he's continuing with, and says what? They make slaves of others because they themselves are enslaved. Mm. Any mention of climate? No. Any mention of government tax policies? Any mention of going green? No. Verse 20. For 
if after they had escaped the pollutions of the world, notice in reference to 18, escaping those who lived in error, not those who lived in use of carbon emissions, those who lived in error, it says what? The pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Then it goes on in verse 21, For it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it happened to them according to the true proverb, and he quotes here Proverbs 26, 11, A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow or a pig, having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So the point Peter makes is that false teachers are going to false teach. Sinners are going to sin, corrupt are going to spread corruption. And if you encounter these sort of people, he goes on to emphasize that God's going to deal with them. You need to limit your dealings with them because they're contagious. They have a way of pulling out the worst in you because what is in you is not only prominent in them, but dominating them in the lives of those around them. If we read into this, oh, climate change, because it uses the word pollution, we're zeroing in on a single word rather than a series of sentences. And that's not how literature is not only read, but understood. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know what might help you? Who was it that... Uh, Lila. Lila, good question. Uh, and thanks for asking that question. Is um, It might help uh, sometimes like if you just read... Uh, like a, uh, a whole, like if you, if you see a passage of scripture like that, it's good to just maybe look at the whole book in its entirety, or you can maybe even just read like a couple chapters, you know, from where that verse is that you're kind of looking at and kind of see what the context is. And this is a big part of like Bible study is just finding the context of the passage. And what we mean by that is, you know, the who, what, where, when, why of the passage um, in, in the day that, uh, you know, it was put down on paper, even though it wasn't on paper, but you get the ideas. What is the original intent of what is being uh, communicated here? Um, sometimes what we, in our day, like when you're online and you're on YouTube or something like that, sometimes a person can take a passage like this that talks about pollution and then they can kind of pull that passage out. And we have a term for that. It's kind of a highfalutin term. But, uh, um, and... Um, eisegesis. Yeah, eisegesis. But not that you need to know that, but there is a term for that where you just take one verse and you kind of pull it out and you just utilize that passage by itself. It's like a standstill passage. It's all by itself. Even though that's not the original intent, of the person trying to communicate this passage, right? There's chapter one, there's chapter two, there's a there's a context, who this is being written to, um, what it's about, everything like that. So I would just say that in your Bible study or when you read, a, when you hear of a passage that's just one passage like this, um, make sure you're reading a couple chapters before and maybe a couple chapters after to get the flow of what the intent is. Um, the danger is that you just take one verse. Um, you know, I think of like a verse in Ecclesiastes, one of the books of the Bible. It's better to be a, a, a live dog than a dead lion, you know, and it's like, 
okay, you could take that passage and and maybe talk about all kinds of interesting things with that passage. But it, it but there's a whole reason why he he says that. And uh, and you'd have to read the book to understand it. And so that's that's just uh, I would give you that's my 10 cents to help you maybe just with your Bible study and Bible reading and maybe to help you kind of stay clear of some things on the Internet that uh, can really cause a lot of a lot of anxiety and stress. All right. Um, Here's another interesting question from Maggie, who wants to know how political should Christians be? Uh, she's on the fence about anything that she reads these days lately and been feeling very, very anxious about what goes on in the political world, not just the Middle East, but in general. Um, liberals can be just as extreme as conservatives, so how involved should we be? She doesn't know who to believe in news media. Good. And of course, it goes on to wondering if you're just supporting a narrative as opposed to hearing the truth. So regarding this, how, do, how much information do I absorb? How do I keep myself from spiraling and having my imagination get away with me? Um, good question, Maggie. Uh, when it comes to Christian political involvement, the, all, the old adage, I guess, is the word I'm looking for, is that there's two things that you don't want to speak of in polite company, and that is politics and religion, which is ironic because those are the two things that actually matter. When it comes to religion, it, it refers to our vertical relationship with God and men. When it comes to politics, we're referring to our horizontal relationships with each other, with men and other men. So when you narrow it down to that cross-section, pun intended, you really have covered the whole of human relationships. So when people get invested in religion, they're speaking of the afterlife and the moral implications and responsibilities of this life. These things do matter. To say that we shouldn't discuss them is ridiculous because not only do these things have huge consequences for us long term, but short term as well. The same is true for politics. Now, the joke is oftentimes said, politics is a word that comes from Latin. It's uh, poly, like polynomial, polynumeral, it means many, and ticks, which are blood-sucking leeches. It's always going to be a mess when you have fallen sinful human beings involved with other fallen sinful human beings. But the problem is, the problem is us rather than the system. And if you are involved in a sound system but with corrupt users, it's easy to confuse it as a corrupt system, to burn the whole thing to the ground and think that, wrongly, we'd be better off without any system or form of government, what's called anarchy. But the reality is, and again, noting extremes here, the other stat of total domination and government control is just as foolish because humans need to be governed. And likewise, if only humans had the right to govern, that we couldn't govern ourselves or that you mitigate mistakes, then you end up having tyranny, which is, in a sense, fallen sinful human beings abusing their power, not necessarily immediately, but always eventually. History can attest to this. So when we're looking for a balance, when we say, well, we can't have discussions about religion, going back to the vertical, because there's so many different views on so many secondary issues. To say then that these things can't be discussed in polite company, not to say that they always necessarily are, is just as foolish as to say, well, there's so many secondary issues on how our daily lives ought to be run, therefore we just can't allow any conversation on it. Both are ridiculous. So let's go into, into not the middle ground, because 
taking the middle road oftentimes is, again, we're full of analogies today. Like the middle of the road where you usually only find yellow streaks and dead skunks, we want to actually know what side is in line with truth and let that be our authority. When it comes to whether or not your political views are well-informed or not, all of us can only be as informed as what we hear and what we see, which isn't always being dictated to us honestly, as you yourself pointed out. So when it comes to the standard for, and this will be the emphasis of my answer to this question, receiving, relating, and living in light of these issues, how we discuss these things. In receiving information, trust but verify. Know that fallen sinful human beings are going to have a worldview, a lens through which they see things, and it's going to block out or blur things that they don't want to see, and it's going to overemphasize or hyper-focus things that they do. That's as true for me as it is true for you, and it's as true for the liberal as it is for the conservative. We're not going to always objectively see the whole picture. More views are better than less. But when you take in that information, you verify it. You ask, okay, not what does the other radical group say, because they're going to be just as unobjective, but say, what about this sounds right? In light of what I already do know and can trust, does this match up or is something fishy going on here? If they provide direct photographs, for example, of a certain somebody's manifesto of them explaining in their own words, and then it's censored, you can probably tell it was true because you see the bias is starting to show. As you're receiving information, you test it. Second, in relating information, obviously, I got a worldview, you've got a worldview, all of God's children have a worldview, and they're going to see this through a particular lens. That's quoting the guy to my right here. When it comes to then how this is going to either distance ourselves or put off certain people who share other worldviews, it's a matter of, and this is the emphasis we'll give you on this, choosing your battles. If it's something important, like, for example, where politics and religion tend to meet, that our policies in regards to the treatment of Israel, the protection of the Hebrew people, the well-being and overall perception of the Hebrews living in our country or around the world, that does matter because the promises of Genesis 12.3 is a direct one. That does matter. And if people are going to be chanting, gas the Jews, and oh, remember the USS Liberty and all that stuff, then you have to think for a second, this is the heart of Satan, and I don't want to appease this. I don't think I could appease this even if I wanted to. That would be a battle worth having. On the other hand, people are like, look, let people in government do their jobs, and you can do yours. If you have a problem with higher taxes, then understand what those things are there for. Well, I can argue and say, well, I don't agree with what's being done with those taxes. I can say, well, I would have a lot better, um, I guess, form of living if I had more of my money than less and I wasn't having to subsidize people who weren't working for it. All these things could be left to other conversations that may even not necessarily go anywhere because none of us are in a position to actually do anything about it. It'd be the mental equivalent of just a few imagination uh, fan fictions being compared against another. No one can end up being right, so there's an objective that's lost there. And then there's other conversations for the sake of time I won't waste, but that's in how you relate information. Choose your battles and ask, is there a goal here? If we can't do anything about it, that's one thing, but another stat is, is this important, especially when it comes to being in line with Scripture? Jew hatred and abortion are two issues that we don't compromise on. Tax policies and... Uh, 
what would be another example? Um, I guess uh, the fair mitigation of uh, legal penalties and stuff, that's another. So make sure that when you're talking to people that you don't engage unnecessarily in these kinds of conflicts. The third, and I think the most nuanced of the three, not just receiving, not just relating, but living in light of it, when it comes to personal convictions, you have to be willing to test yourself and always work under the assumption, I'm probably wrong. I'm not working with all information. I'm working with enough information that's keeping me alive. And if someone else comes across, and this is how I study the Bible too, by the way, every time I read the same passage again and again and again, I always come to it with the attitude as if this is the first time I'm reading it. I always have something to learn. If someone comes to me and says something that I know is false, that's different. But if someone comes to me with something that I just don't know anything about, that's A, an exercise for me to practice humility and hear them out. Second, an opportunity for me to exercise those brain cells that I prefer to leave dormant and use for other things, and actually invest in the lives of minds other than mine. And the multitude of counselors, there is safety, right? That's in the Proverbs. But the most important thing is going to be, okay, am I adopting the kind of humility, the kind of attitude that is willing to learn? And I think that's something that we can exercise in religion as much as politics. Where the twain meet, be sensitive. Where the twain don't meet, be amicable, be willing to learn. And most of all, when it comes to, again, unreasonable people, just give them their space, because more and more in this day and age, we're running into people that, uh, well, are willing to burn heretics at the stake, so to speak, and not even for religious purposes, because politics has become their religion. From these, I'd mirror the words of Peter and Paul, turn away, because they're only going to end up causing trouble. Um, that is, again, my opinion. Take of it what you will. Bo, do you have uh, any comments on this sort of topic? I know that uh, you definitely have a, a very diverse background in these sort of things. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, but uh, let me first just say this, is that if you look at the last chapter of the Book of Romans, it'll really help you a little bit and answer some of your questions. Uh, I love the end of the book of Romans, the last chapter, so cool. Paul names off just a group of people, a ton of people actually, and it's a really neat study to find out who these people are. But the last person that he talks about is Erastus, and he says Erastus is the treasurer of the city. <laughs> which is very cool. So when he's giving his greetings, he says, Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you, and Cordus, a brother. And this is in verse 23 of chapter 16 of Romans. And uh, you see that Paul, when he was at the Oropagus in the book of Acts, chapter 17, it says that after he gave his uh, talk, that uh, there was a person named Dionysus, the Oropagate, uh, and then other people as well, but this person who is like a judge at the Oropagus, uh, some judicial person there. Um, the point being is that in the Bible, we have people that are in some form of government work, and this is a thread that's throughout the whole Scripture, um, meaning there's people that have that work in the government, and they've remained in the government. Um, you know, there's the whole Old Testament is filled with people that are involved in the government work, if you will, of the people of Israel. It's just loaded with it. 
Um, in the New Testament, there are people that are uh, as well mentioned that have a governmental position. Um, and we are not told anywhere by the Lord or by any of the apostles that if someone's in a political place to just get out of it. And so there's no command in the Bible that says, get out of politics. There's nothing that says that. It might be, uh, that might be uh, some wise counsel, you know, at, at some point, but there's no command of that. You know, you know, instead, you know, if you're able to, uh, you know, you change your world through your political involvement, that's awesome. That is absolutely cool. You know, and if, I mean, if God puts that on your heart and you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can be in that political world and do it under the Lord for the glory of God, man, right on. Go for it. You know, that's great. Um, uh, that that kind of idea. So I would I would just give you that those scriptures to look at to to find people that are in these positions, and they're not told to get out of those positions. So you don't see that command. So um, you know how political should you be personally? That's that's a question we can't answer for you personally. But you know biblically speaking, is it wrong to be in politics? No. Is it wrong to not be in politics? No. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you have to do what the Lord's telling you to do and how he's moving you in your life. Um, you don't see any command to get in politics. You don't see any command to get out of politics. So um, uh, that kind of thing. Um, so hopefully that helps you a little bit, and maybe some of that study of the people of Romans chapter 16 will really enlighten you, and you'll be kind of blown away by all these different people and their backgrounds, and there's all kinds of folk that God calls. Yeah, even in the households of Herod and Caesar Nero. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not exactly ideal Yeah, I saw, I saw that too in there. Yeah, the, uh, someone from Herod's household. I mean, wow, what a trip. Talk about a political family. Yeah. You know, so... Um, yeah, anyway, great question. All right, a uh, question about the doctrine of soul sleep. Is it biblical? Uh, for no. those who aren't in on the joke, soul sleep is the claim that when the Bible uses the word sleep, it's not just how it actually is used, it's actually an insight into the condition of the afterlife, that when someone physically dies, their body dies, their soul goes into an unconscious state for a time, and that at the last resurrection, when a soul has a body again, then it regains consciousness because it has a place to inhabit. So when someone physically dies, the soul sleep doctrine is that for however many thousand years it will be until Revelation 20, the first resurrection, those souls are just inert. They're unconscious. They're unaware of what's going on, and that in realms of time and space, it's going to seem instantaneous to them, but in reality, all this time has passed. Is that biblical? Is that a proper handling of the word sleep in Scripture? And uh, if not, what are the problems? Yeah, okay. So, uh, I'm going to just bring up some passages of Scripture that do talk about sleep. Um, one of them is Psalm 13.4 that talks about the sleep of death. Uh, one of them is 1 Thessalonians 4.13, a very famous passage that talks about those that have fallen asleep. 
Um, there are there is an, another passage that talks about this, and it's when, at, when in the book of Acts, chapter seven, when Stephen is actually dying. Um, in that passage, it says that he fell asleep, and so we see the term sleep being used quite a bit. So some people have looked at this and interpreted it as in going to sleep, <laughs> but we got a problem, and that is. Um, we don't see that uh, this is actually what happens to people when they die, practically speaking. So we have, an exam- we have examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of people that are dead, yet they are not sleeping. They are actually not sleeping. <laughs> Conscious, they're aware of their surroundings, they can't interact with the world. That's right. So we look at in First uh, Samuel chapter twenty-eight, we see that a person named Saul comes back. Samuel. Our Samuel comes back, and um, he is not sleeping. He is very much aware of things and and uh, everything like that. We see that Moses and Elijah um, are not sleeping, and they are hanging out with Jesus uh, you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And and so and then we have just really plain passages of scripture that Paul talk about in the book of Corinthians chapter five that he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and so Paul makes it a real big emphasis in this Corinthian passage to say that hey it is better for me to go be with the Lord I'd rather actually die and go be with the Lord than be with you guys and. Uh, and so uh, it, it's obviously uh, Paul's belief that when he would die and breathe his last, he would go be with the Lord, absent from the bodies, present with the Lord. We see that Jesus on the, uh, on the cross uh, says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say today you're going to take a nap. Um, so we have to look at why is this term sleep being used in the Bible? Well, it's because from the perspective of the earthlings, it looks like when a person's dead, they kind of look like they're what? Asleep. And so from the earthly point of view, a person who is dead is no longer amongst the land of the living. They are, in a sense, uh, away from us. They are no longer a part of our our world and the things that are going on here. They are asleep to us, you know, uh, but that's from our perspective. That's from our point of view, because the scripture make it very clear that these people that have passed away, even uh, David's baby uh, that he lost with Bathsheba, um, David made it clear that that baby would be in the presence of the Lord, and David would be there at some point with, with the baby. And uh, so, anyway, that's my, my ten cents on that. I, I do uh, want to recommend a book, though, by Rene Pache, just on uh, the future. Um, this is an old book, The Future Life. It's by a French guy, Rene Pache, on everything about the resurrections that the Bible speaks of, where uh, people go when they die, the different um, topics along this line. It is a solid book. I've had it for a long period of time. It is definitely one of my favorite books on these subjects. Um, and he talks about soul sleep. Some He talks about annihilation, 
of the soul. Some people are very much into that. They're, that hell is not eternal. And Rene Pache goes into very detailed scriptures on why that's not the case. Um, why not? Why? Because... No, I mean, why not? Uh, oh, yeah. What, what, well, uh, anything more you have to see on this, why don't we follow up with that? We don't have any questions right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can, we can get into that. So did you have a question, though, or did you have another answer to or another thought on the other one? No, just a careful reading of those passages, and just a reminder, it's not wrong to come to conclusions, but you test those conclusions with right. other scriptures. Yeah. If plain statements conflict with your conclusion, you don't twist the scriptures, you alter your conclusion. So if, for instance, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for instance, says uh, when we're talking about those who sleep in Christ as opposed to those who have died, he uses it in the span of one verse, I think it was 11 actually, 11 and 12, that is setting terms for it. And if you see this trend throughout Scripture, but mm. read this whole, I guess, um, loophole into the concept of the afterlife and the conditions therein, you have to assume more than what the text is actually giving you. And so that's not how you form doctrine. That's how you start cults, to be quite frank. So make sure that you don't fall into that trap. But yeah. annihilationism is another example of that, and just for the sake of those listening, yeah. annihilationism is the claim that not only is hell not eternal, but that the, um, I guess, conditions of the judgment of the wicked is a temporary one, that if someone were to, and this is the intent behind it to a point, uh, believe that God would punish someone eternally for a temporal amount of sin, that mm. that would somehow be unjust. And so the idea is that God's being merciful in allowing someone to essentially cease to be, rather than allow his wrath to exist for a period of unending time. So in order to diminish hell, they think that that exalts the character of God. And then, of course, diminishing the severity of sin and it not needing to be punished eternally. They also think that exalts the mercy of God even towards the wicked. Now, I'm making this sound somewhat better than it actually is. The fact of the matter is when it comes to this doctrine, it's adhered to by some very major cults today. Modern-day Aryans like Jehovah's Witnesses try to use this argument in order to dismiss the doctrine of hell because their founder actually started the cult of the Jehovah's Witnesses on the basis mm -hmm. of this denial of hellfire entirely. Um, they believe that annihilation is instantaneous, that no time spent in hell. There's no such thing as hell that there's just an inexistence for those who don't belong to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and that those who do belong to the Jehovah's Witnesses are also annihilated, but Jehovah makes a copy of them based on his perfect memory of them. Ooh, so, that's confusing. Yeah, we all <laughs> cease to exist according to their happy world. <laughs> Fun. But um, when it comes to annihilationism, uh, there's even, unfortunately, popular folk in apologetic circles that adhere to this in a partial view but one nonetheless. Uh, what are the problems with it? Well, I would say the first problem is that there's affirmations of the eternal duration of the distresses of hell. <laughs> that's, that's how Rene Pache puts it. Um, Isaiah 33, 14, 66, 24 talks about this everlasting burning of the fire that shall never be quenched and the worm which shall never die. Um, Daniel talks about this in his book, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, that says that some would awake to eternal life and others unto shame and everlasting contempt. 
And that's important. Because it's the same word. So if if we have eternal life, then it's obviously talking about eternal hell, too. Yeah, uh, heaven Um, isn't a temporary condition. Yeah, so John the Baptist spoke about them uh, uh, also as unquenchable fire in Matthew 3.12 and Mark 9.43. And it goes on and on. Um, the Lord says, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41 and 46, and the Lord will say, depart from me into eternal fire. These, and these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So again, it's that same, are we going into eternal life or is it just temporary eternal life? That would be the question. If it's just temporary eternal life, like you get it for a couple years, <laughs> then that's it. It wouldn't be too eternal, you know, but it says eternal life. And so when it says eternal, you know, um, you know, death, eternal punishment, well, that's eternal, just like eternal life is eternal. So we ever we see also Matthew 12:32 whoever shall speak against the holy spirit will not be forgiven him neither in this world nor in that which is to come so um for second Thessalonians 1:9 they shall suffer punishment even eternal destruction from the face of the lord um Hebrews 6:2 the eternal judgment um is talked about in that passage um Jude 6, 7, and 13 talk about this, uh, that uh, their judgment is, uh, and their punishment is eternal fire. So this is on, it just goes on and on and on, this idea of eternal punishment. So it's very hard to just say, hey, but I understand people go, hey, God's loving, like why, but I love what Pache says about this. Let me try to find what he says about that idea. And while you're looking for that, let me just reach the olive branch to the other side here, because we actually read positions other than our own. When it comes to this argument, it's once again emphasizing the eternal nature of judgment and the eternal nature of reward. Right. And so if someone, and this is where essentially both the annihilationist and the biblicist can meet on common terms, when it comes to the basis on which we're judged, is it the merit or demerit of our actions or the acceptance or rejection of an eternal God? And if that acceptance of an eternal God comes through his Son, we are with Jesus forever. The simplest reference to Jesus, or simplest definition of heaven possible. If we are rejecting that relationship, we are without Jesus forever. The Bible really sets it up as this dichotomy. You have been created to literally exist. You had a beginning, but eternally forwards. And if in that image you reject it, there are consequences for that, just as the restoration of that has everlasting reward. The annihilationist has to put forward his case and his best case in order to either diminish the holiness of God in turning a blind eye to or diminishing the severity of sin or undermining the price that was paid for their salvation and that the wrath that would be due in rejecting it. Mm-hmm. Because that would be a sin that would not only earn ire, but eternal ire more than any other sin. So the annihilationist position, according to the biblicist view, has to exalt the holiness of God and exalt the right. the um, weight 
of the price that was paid for us and right. the price of rejecting it as well. We've got about a minute and a half. So yeah, I'll just uh, I'll just read say? this little part. Um, this is what Pache says about. Um, is is an eternal hell compatible with the love of God? We have already mentioned popular opinion, which would make God too good to punish sinners forever. As for this, let us clear it up right away. Uh, one gross error: we must declare that quote the God, the good God, does not exist. A God who is weak and indulgent, who spends his time pardoning anything and everything, and who never uh, manifests any severity, is in reality just an idol. So the way Pache puts it is like, you might want God to do this. You might think, oh, it's really good of God to do this, this annihilation. But he says it's it's an idol God. It's, yeah. it's not the God of the Bible. And that's countering the argument. Well, I just can't imagine. I don't like that kind of wrathful God. Right, I just don't and, like it, yeah. And the reality is, we're either going with the Biblicist view, the God of Scripture as he's revealed himself, or the God we like, the God of Jehovah's Witnesses, the God yeah. of Muslims, the God of whoever. The reality is that God is who he is, whether we like it or not. And the person revealed, the character revealed, the mercy and the holiness revealed in the person of Jesus Christ needs yeah. to be where it starts. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that someone who is is believing in nihilism is, in a sense, you know, an idolater no, 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 no. per se. I'm just saying that, it, you know, this is, uh, you know, the Bible makes it clear, you know, that it is eternal. Yeah, and there's room for people to kind of put these topics on the shelves while they're focusing on other things in their walk with yeah. God, but just understand why we disagree. Yeah. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you all tomorrow. Until then, God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.